Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity to learn our faith together uh, through the wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Of course, we have a worldwide audience, and you may be listening to this program in Australia, the Philippines, uh, the United Kingdom, Canada, or the United States of America on Radio Maria. But no matter where you're listening, please uh, know that we're praying for you and we appreciate your support. And so uh, this week we'll continue our journey together. Uh, I like to say that our true home is in heaven and uh, hopefully by the grace of God we'll all get there one day. And, you know, Archbishop Sheen will help us get to heaven because he's going to provide us with the lessons that we need, of course, the uh, divine wisdom, you know, that comes from learning the faith. And I I say divine because uh, we need a divine intervention in this crazy, crazy world we live in. All right, we've been doing um, the sacraments. um, And I say, uh, you know, doing the sacraments, but I really mean we're learning the sacraments together. Uh, we've been talking about baptism, confirmation, and now for the next two weeks we're going to talk about the Eucharist. And uh, today Archbishop Sheen is going to give a reflection uh, in his catechism series under the title, The Holy Eucharist as a Sacrament. And then next week he's going to talk about the Holy Eucharist as a sacrifice. So you can see the sacrament or the sacrifice. Uh, But still, the Eucharist is uh, a beautiful, deep mystery. Uh, I think of Archbishop Sheen's love for the Holy Hour, and where he was uh, encouraging us to go visit our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, uh, to adore our Lord, to spend time with Him face to face. And so uh, this lesson today on the Holy Eucharist as a Sacrament will be uh, very key in uh, helping you to understand Uh, the beauty that we have, that Christ is with us. He said in scriptures, I will not leave you orphan. And he was true to his promise. He is present in every tabernacle throughout the world. And so God is with us. My friends, we will share the catechism lesson with you in the second half of the broadcast, but we usually start on a lighter note. And so I'll be sharing with you Uh, one of Sheen's uh, television shows from his Life is Worth Living series. And today's reflection is titled, The World in Which We Live. And uh, Archbishop Sheen knew, uh, yeah, we live in um, a world full of of confusion, 
uh, a wor world full of sin and turmoil, uh, but a world full of hope and love too. So um, I think I think people were looking for perspective to say, Archbishop Shane, what kind of world do we live in? What do you see? <laughs> Can you give us some timely advice? And, and he does that, of course, in his reflection here. So without further ado, may I invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy uh, one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives a presentation titled, The World in Which We Live. Please enjoy. Friends, this is our final telecast of this season. We received uh, recently a word from uh, Madison, Wisconsin, about a little boy aged four by the name of Denny, and he had been writing on the walls picked it up somewhere on television. <laughs> and his mother heard the talk on juvenile delinquency and uh, paddled his little canoe for him. And the following Tuesday night, he was looking at television. His mother was in another room, and he ran out. He says, Mommy, Bishop Sheen is writing on the wall. Naughty Bishop. <laughs> I suppose you have about the same feeling towards commercials that almost everybody has, and I would like to say a word about commercials. I, I think that maybe an entirely different way of presenting sponsors could be done on the air. After all, isn't there a kind of an ethical relationship between the sponsor and those who see the program? Somebody invited you to dinner in order that you might hear a celebrated pianist. Wouldn't you write that person a letter of thanks and feel that some obligation had been created on account of the courtesy? Well, is there not somehow or other, kind of an obligation created between you and the sponsor, namely the Admiral Corporation. And then, do I think there's a relationship, too, between a sponsor and the kind of show they put on? I know if I were in business, I wouldn't want to put on crime pictures. I'd be afraid that they might think I was doing something crooked, too. <laughs> and let me tell you this that I wouldn't be on this program unless Admiral was ethically worth supporting. So remember... <laughs> Admiral has brought you this show. I thank him. I thank you, Mott, for transmitting it and everyone who's helped in the good Lord keeping us in health and ideas. Many letters from people saying, six months vacation is too long for you. Everybody thinks I'm something like a baseball player. As soon as the season finishes, I go fishing. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you tonight what I do on my vacation. Listen closely. I will get back to you a little later on. First of all, I want to tell you something about the world, because that has something to do with my vacation. There's only one sun to light a world. And that sun has satellites revolving round about it. But it happens that in this political world, there are two suns. The United States and Russia. And each would have its satellite revolving round about it. And that's one of the reasons why the world today is in difficulty. It is not one 
There are two suns that would light it. There's a difference between the two. And here's the difference between the Soviet Republic, the Communists, and the United States. The Soviet Republic, the Communists, are on the offensive. That is to say, they are out actually to conquer the world. We are on the defensive. We are not warlike people. We do not want to conquer the world. We want to live in peace. The second difference is this. The communists have decided to conquer the world by going east, and particularly to Asia. We have decided to be on the defensive principally by going to Europe, and hence the Marshall Plan and the NATO. But the communists are going eastward. Lenin once said, the shortest route to Paris passes through Peiping, China. Which is the better view? Communists are wiser in going east. The future of the world belongs to the east. That's why they are wiser. But there's a weakness, and a grave weakness, in communism. And that weakness is that when they go eastward, to India, to China, to Korea, to Vietnam, to Japan, and everywhere else in the world, they say, we want to help the poor. We are the lovers of the masses. In theory, they do love the poor. But their weakness is that in practice, they do not. And here are some reasons why they do not love the poor. Why their position is weak in Africa. And in Asia. They have no love for the individual poor. Karl Marx once said that we have no respect for the individual as such. An individual person has value only on condition that he is a member of the Revolutionary Party and that. He said it is the Christian doctrine that gives the person a value. Not communism. Furthermore, the weakness of communism in the East is that despite their protests for the poor, they are not doing anything for them. Name any good that the communists have done for the poor of America. They've spent millions of dollars here in propaganda, millions and millions, but name one hospital that they have built. Perhaps they've gone to Korea, Vietnam, Indochina, Indonesia, India, and China. Name one dispensary. Name one leprosaria. Name a single clinic. Name any humanitarian work that they have built just in order to aid the poor. They've seized hospitals. Yes, they've seized Protestant hospitals. The Protestant missionaries built in China, they seized some of our own. 
But who can go into those hospitals? Only the party members. Not the poor people. Their weakness is they cannot explain suffering. Oh, yes, they can dignify, for example, one of their party members who's arrested. They can make much of one of their party leaders or one of their generals who is killed. And then they can stuff him as they stuff Lenin. But how about the poor man that's not a party member and who suffers? What answer have they got? They profess a love of the poor. The love of the masses. They've taken up something that the French Revolution gave the world. They love humanity. But there's no such thing as humanity. There's no such thing as the masses. There's only Peter and Paul and John and Mary and Anne, only poor individual persons where their own sufferings of heart and body and soul. Communism is not interested in them, but they're telling the East they are interested. Oh, the East is poor indeed. We must be interested in them. Let me tell you something of how poor the East is. I have here a map of the world. I want to contrast some other parts of the world with us. Now take, for example, the United States. The per capita income, that is to say the income of every man, woman, and child in the United States is $1,750 a year. The per capita income of China, before the communists went in, was $26 a year, and it's now less. The highest per capita income in all of Asia is Japan, and that is only $172. The per capita income of Kenya Colony in Africa is only $42. Then, in addition to that, they do not have the medical services that we have. Look at here, for example. In the United States, there is one doctor for every 750 persons. One doctor for every 750. In New Guinea, there's one doctor for every 34,000 people. In Pakistan, There's one doctor for every 40,000 people. And in Indonesia, there's one doctor for every 60,000 people. And not only that, here are some other startling figures and facts. Do you know that one-third of the people of the world earn less than one dollar a week. Think of that. One third of the whole world earns less than what an American would spend on four packages of cigarettes. And then in addition to that, here, for example, 
two-thirds of the people of the world are earning less than $4 a week. Do you know that two-thirds of the people of the world go to bed hungry every night? Think of that. Two-thirds go to bed hungry every night. And one-third of the people of the United States are overweight. Why, two-thirds of the people of the world do not know what it is to have a square meal. I tell you, these are serious facts. And the burden is on us. The burden is on us to help them. Now I'll tell you what I'm trying to do on vacation. Television is my vacation, in as much as I take two or three hours off a day to get ready for you. This is my work all the time. My work is to aid these people that I've been talking about. My work is to help and supply aid for 3,400 dispensaries that we have scattered throughout the world. There's a home that's typical of our 1750 a year. And there's someone in the audience tonight who lived in a house like that for a year. We have 1,200 hospitals. This is one of our hospitals in India. We've got 225 leprosaria where we were caring for 100,000 lepers. There's one of our leper colonies. There are millions of them that are in the world. In addition to that, 280 homes for the aged. 2,000 orphanages. You know that last year we cared for, think of it, 65 million, 65 million aged, sick children and victims of leprosy. And how do we care for them? We cared for them with 100,000 workers and not one of whom receives a cent of salary. Not a one. That's my vacation. That's my work. Why, I tell you, the burden is on us. We are the rich people of the world. So we have to bring them, we have to bring them some love. Which I know we have to aid them. Our government is aiding them, yes. But believe me, that is not going to save the East. Yes, we give them aid. We have our point four program. We will also ask for landing fields. Remember, love does not ask for anything. Love just wants to serve, to consecrate itself. Gets nothing in return, not even a salary. We're not loving anybody when we say we'll give you this if you be our first line of defense and you fight in the first trenches and we'll fight in the tent. That's not love. That may be necessary from a military and political point of view, but it's not the kind of love that's going to save this world of ours from another war. I'm not telling you that these people in the East and the people of the world need us. Oh, they, what do they need us for? Oh, yes, a little bread for their hungry stomachs, yes. A little cell phone for their leprosy, yes. Roof over their heads. Industries in order to increase production and their economics, yes. 
all they need us for. But what do we, we the richest nation on the face of God's earth, what do we need them for? Why do we need them? We need them to de-egotize ourselves. To uproot our selfishness so we'll have less need of psychoanalytic cultures. We need them in order to justify the possessions that we have. To prove before men and before God that we are trustees of the wealth that he has given to us. We need them in order that we may have the blessing of God in our being. And in addition to that, have his grace upon our souls. Take them out of the world, what do we lose? We lose every opportunity in the world prove the unselfishness and devotedness of life. We lose the spirit, we lose charity if we take them out of the world and take us out of the world and what do we lose? Materialities. Things that we have. We do not have much love, any of us. Very little, in fact. Our love is like a river. the wider the river gets, the more shallow is the water. The love of God is not like that. But our love is. That is one of the reasons we cannot love everybody deeply and intensely. Therefore, since our love is limited, we should spend more time loving those that are beneath us. Those that we say are beneath us. Because those that are above us will have others to love them. Who is it that does not love a rose? But who loves the leaves? And yet the leaves of the sweet briar are fragrant after the rain. And these common people, these millions of people throughout the world, one third that are earning only a dollar a week on my vacation, these people, they're fragrant like the leaves of sweet briar. Oh, I tell you, our responsibility is great, and that is one of the reasons why I have turned beggar. I'm a beggar. That's what I am. That's the way I spend my vacation. Really. You can meet me anywhere, begging. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I draw, drew some cartoons to show you how I beg. Now, here's a cartoon proving that you're not safe on a deserted, isolated island. <laughs> you see? See, Bishop Sheen gets around everywhere, doesn't he, huh? And then, you hear programs interrupted. Now a word from our sponsor. You don't want to know what my angel's doing on his vacation? That's what he's doing. He's coming out from behind your television set. He's going to trouble you all summer long. He's going to say, did you remember Bishop Sheen? Remember that last broadcast? Remember, remember? And then... Here's another one. Here's some visitors come to New York. They go on a sightseeing bus. And the sightseeing bus passes my office. <laughs> and the bus driver said, and this is Bishop Sheen's office at 366 Fifth Avenue. And look where I am. I've already got my hand out. Now, 
That's my vacation. And why... Why am I on... on television? I'm on television to be a beggar, a beggar of your prayers, and a beggar of your concrete love, anything that you want to do to help the poor of the world. Sixty-five million, regardless of race and color and creed, and we're helping. Yes. The poor beggar. I receive something for being on television, and yet I receive nothing. Why not? Every single cent that I receive on television is given to these poor people whom I describe tonight. Every single cent. There is not one penny that is deducted for any expenses of any kind. It all goes to them. That's the way it should be. Where do I get the gifts and the talent to talk to you? Where do I get the opportunity? God gave it to me. Shall I then take God's gifts and use these gifts for myself? They are not mine. Shall I seek popularity? If I seek that, God will take my voice away. He will take my brain away. I do not deserve to have it. Have it only on condition that I use it for his cause and his purpose. And if I have therefore done anything, anything at all, to create in your mind just one tiny little spark of love for God. If I've saved an alcoholic, and there were some that were saved. In the New York subway a few weeks ago, one man said to another, you know, since that talk on alcoholism, I haven't touched a drop in eight weeks, and I was an alcoholic. The mother prayed. After losing four boys, that she would have a boy. She would name it after me. She wants God to take it, to do the same kind of work. So if I've helped you, if I've brought you closer to God, if I've given you a spark of truth, if I've done anything to help your soul in any way whatsoever, if I have done any of these things, I do not want you just to thank me. I want you to thank the poor whom I work and to thank it in some very concrete way. You know how to do it. In any way that you please, and do it just out of love, to increase the love that there is in the world. And I tell you that I will not be remiss in my love either. Or if you do that for me, I promise you that for 30 days I will spend two hours a day on my knees for you and you and all of you. Thanks for helping my poor. You are listening to Radio Maria a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And you can see that heartfelt plea that Archbishop Sheen gave at the end of his broadcast there to uh, be as generous as they could to the poor and the marginalized. Uh, Archbishop Sheen raised millions of dollars for the poor uh, through his pleas on television and radio. And, of course, uh, we'd like to make a plea to you to, uh, again, remember Radio Maria in your financial giving. Yes, we appreciate your prayers, and uh, they come in so handy. It's amazing how prayer keeps this all together. 
uh, but we do need uh, some financial resources to pay our bills. Uh, we have a, an electric bill that comes in every month to uh, keep the lights on and keep our equipment working. Of course, we have other costs, but still, uh, we want to keep doing what we're doing here at Radio Maria. And so it doesn't matter if it's in Australia, the Philippines, the United Kingdom, the United States, or Canada. Uh, we still have our expenses, and so please be as generous as you can to Radio Maria. My dear friends, we are now going to enjoy this uh, catechism lesson through Archbishop Sheen, where he will talk about the Holy Eucharist as a sacrament. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. The whole world really has a hunger for God. As Augustine put it, our hearts were made for thee, O Lord, and they are restless until they rest in thee. When our blessed Lord saw a very hungry crowd, he said, I am sorry for the multitude. They have nothing to eat. What he gave them on that occasion is the subject of this lesson. And it brings us to the sacrament of the Eucharist. In order that we may keep the parallel and the analogy between the natural life and the supernatural life, it will be recalled that in order to lead a physical life, we must be born to it. In order to lead a supernatural life, we have to be born to it, and that is the sacrament of baptism. Then once we are born, we must grow physically. Spiritually, too, we must achieve maturity and accept responsibilities. That is the sacrament of confirmation. Now we come to the new element in life. If life is or if life is ever to live, it must nourish itself. If divine life is to live, it too needs its nourishment. That is the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the greatest of all the sacraments because it contains in a substantial way the person of Christ who is the author of life. It is the one sacrament to which all of the other sacraments look. Imagine six arrows in a circle all pointing to a center. The center is the Eucharist. The six arrows are the other sacraments. The Eucharist is the sun around which the other sacraments revolve as planets. All the other sacraments share in its power and they perfect themselves in the celebration of the Eucharist. It is a sacrament that is so sublime that human reason could never guess at it. Divine love is far deeper than we know. Now the aim of this spoken encyclopedia is not to tell you what you must believe, but to explain the faith to you. So we begin describing and explaining the Eucharist through the analogy of biology. All natural laws are reflections of spiritual laws. It is not the other way around. 
The spiritual is the voice, and the natural is the echo. Take, for example, the law of gravitation. That is a physical law which describes the way that all material objects tend toward the earth as its center and as their center. But in addition to that, there is the spiritual law of gravitation by which all things are drawn to God. Material gravitation is really a reflection of spiritual. Now we come to another law, not in the physical order, but in the order of biology. And that law is very simple. It is the law of communion. To live, we must eat. All life lives through communion with some other form of life. There is nothing on this earth that does not obey that law in some way or other. You take, for example, plant life. Though it does not commune on another kind of life, nevertheless, it is dependent upon something else for its existence. So the plant life will go down to the earth for water and for phosphates and carbonates, and it also draws much life from the sun. If these chemicals were blotted out and the sun were blotted out so as to deprive plant life of communion, it would perish. You take plant life. That is, as we said, a communion with lower life, but when we get to animal life, the law becomes far more clear. There's still greater need of nourishment. It needs, of course, nourishment from the mineral order, like sunlight, and air, and so forth. But the nourishment of the animal comes from plant life. From the very moment the animal comes into being, there is a quest for nourishment. Its fundamental instinct is to seek food. The animal roaming in the field, the fish swimming in the ocean, the eagle in the air, all are in search of daily bread. Without ever knowing it, they acknowledge the law that life is impossible without nourishment, that life grows only by life, and the joy of living comes from communion with another kind of life. Now, when you come to man, the same law applies. He has a body, just as animals, and that body clamors for food and more delicate food. Our body is not content as the plant to take its food from the ground raw, uncooked, and unseasoned. It seeks the refinement that comes from a higher creature. And in doing so, it acknowledges that universal law of life, that every living thing must nourish itself. Life lives by life, and the joy of living is enhanced by communion with another form of life. 
But here we come to a difference. Man has a soul as well as a body. Does not his soul demand food? And since his soul is spiritual, does it not require some spiritual food? There's nothing on this earth that can completely satisfy this soul hunger of man simply because it is an unearthly hunger. Everything in this universe demands a nourishment that is suited to its nature. A canary does not use the same kind of food as a boa constrictor because its nature is different. Man's soul is spiritual and therefore it demands a spiritual food. Now what will that food be? Well, that question was answered by our blessed Lord in the plains alongside of the shores of Galilee. And the occasion was, too, when men were hungry. Our blessed Lord saw thousands passing in a Passover caravan, hurrying on to Jerusalem. He marked that they were toiling up the hill in small groups. Some of them were very spent from long walks, particularly mothers dragging their children and old who long for the refreshment of life. And our blessed Lord's heart goes out to them. He proposes to feed them. Andrew the apostle pointed to a boy who had five barley loaves and two fishes. These our blessed Lord took. Notice the way the gospel describes what our Lord did. Notice also the parallel between this description and the Last Supper. We are quoting the Gospel of Mark. And he took up the five loaves and two fishes and looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave to his disciples. With these five barley loaves and two fishes, our blessed Lord fed the multitude of thousands. It was indeed a miracle of multiplication. A grain of wheat multiplies in the ground, so the bread and fishes, by a divinely hastened process, are multiplied until, the gospel says, everyone had his fill. You suppose that if our blessed Lord gave out money instead of bread, that the gospel would have said that everyone had his fill? Well, the effect of this miracle was stupendous. Because they saw the bread and the fishes increasing. And the people saw the possibility of making our Lord a king that would bring prosperity and plenty. So they sought to make him king. That's what people want. 
even from God that walks this earth, economic prosperity. It was almost like the temptation of Satan on the mountain. Remember Satan asked our blessed Lord to turn the stones into bread, to make himself an economic provider. And so the people now wanted our Lord to be a king, an economic, political king that would fill their gullets and their stomachs. And if he did that, he would have power, according to them. And our Lord, knowing that they wished to make him king, fled into the mountains alone. They could not make him king. He was born a king. It could very well have been that this flight from political kingship disillusioned Judas. Do you know that the first record that we have of the fall of Judas takes place when our blessed Lord here announces and promises the Eucharist? And the fall of Judas comes when our blessed Lord gives the Eucharist at the Last Supper. It was the Eucharist that disillusioned Judas. Then Judas knew that our Lord was not going to be an economic king. We said that our blessed Lord left the multitude and they sought to make him king. And then the next morning he is found at Capernaum by the people. They were curious how he got there. And when they asked him, his answer was to reprimand them because they were identifying religion with soup kitchens. And he said, and we quote the Gospel of John, Believe me, if you are looking for me now, it is not because of the miracles you have seen. It is because you were fed with loaves and had your fill. By these words our Lord indicated that they had not taken the miracle as a sign of his divinity. They were looking for him instead of to him. Our Lord continues then to reproach him. And these are his words. You should not work to earn food which perishes in the using. Work to earn food which affords continually eternal life. Such food as the Son of Man will give you. God the Father has authorized him. Our Lord is here setting in contrast two kinds of bread. The bread that perishes, the bread that endures to life everlasting. And he cautioned them against following him as a donkey following a master who holds a carrot 
to lift their carnal minds to eternal food, he suggested that they seek the food that the Heavenly Father had sealed or authorized. This refers to Oriental bread, which was often sealed with the official mark of the name of the baker. In fact, the Talmudic word for baker is related to seal. Just as hosts used in the Mass have a seal upon them, such as a lamb or a cross, so our Lord was implying that the bread that he would give them was sealed or affirmed by his Father, namely himself. They were not satisfied. And so they protested that maybe this miracle was not as great as it seemed. They wanted some further proof that the Father had authorized him. He gave them bread, yes. But that was not stupendous. They argued, had not Moses given them bread from heaven in the desert? Their argument now was, what proof is there that you are greater than Moses? They minimized his miracle, you see, by comparing him to Moses and by comparing the bread to the manna that was given in the desert. Our Lord had indeed fed the multitude only once and Moses had fed the multitude for 40 years in the desert. So they made light of the gift. Our Lord took up the challenge. He said that the manna that they had received from Moses was not heavenly bread nor had it come from heaven. Furthermore, it nourished only one nation for a brief space of time. And it was not Moses who gave the manna, it was his father. And finally, the bread which he would give would nourish unto everlasting life. Then he told them that the true bread comes down from heaven. And they said, Give us this bread. And he answered, It is I who am the bread of life. Now he makes the shadow of the cross appear. Bread must be broken. You came from God must die on the cross as a result of the sins of the world. These are his words. And now what is this bread which I am to give? It is my flesh given for the life of the world. Then the Jews fell to disputing one with another. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Whereupon Jesus said to them, Believe me when I tell you this. You can have no life in yourselves unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Notice that he's picturing himself as one who gives himself, that is to say, gives himself in death 
and the flesh and blood that he will give them. It's not just that flesh and blood that they see, it will be the flesh and blood that will be glorified, send it into heaven at the right hand of the Father. And he said that he would give it for the world. Now they begin to understand that these lambs that they saw were going up to Jerusalem to lose their blood were only a symbol of the Paschal Lamb, the Lamb of God. Then he said to them that they were to live by him as he lived by the Father. His words were, As I live because of the Father, the living Father who has sent me, so he who eats will live in his turn because of me. Our blessed Lord is here saying that the life that passes from father to son is now the life that will pass when he passes into his glory from himself to us. Is there anything strange about it? They knew that it was strange. They all knew what he meant, that he was the bread of life, and that we would have to nourish himself ourselves on his life. They understood that is the reason Judas broke. Some of the disciples left and walked with him no more, saying, This saying is hard, and who can bear it? Then it was that our blessed Lord turned to Peter the rock and said, Will you also go away? And Peter the rock answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou alone hast the words of eternal life. He meant what he said, they knew it. Our Lord would never have permitted his disciples to have left if they had misunderstood him. And now what he promised that day, he fulfilled the night of the Last Supper. We will have occasion to talk of that at great length. But it suffices for the moment to recall that this particular night he gathered all of his apostles round about him. The next day he will die. He institutes a memorial of his death and of his resurrection and ascension. He was said that he was the bread of life. Now, in the words of the gospel, took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Notice he said over the bread, this is my body. He did not say this represents my body, this symbolizes my body, this is a token of my body, but this is my body. Notice that he also said, given for you. Given on the cross. And then taking wine into his hands, the chalice, he said, Drink 
all of you of this. For this is my blood of the New Testament, shed for many, to the remission of sins. Over the chalice of wine, he said, this is my blood, not this represents, but it is. And as the old covenant or testament was ratified with blood, so now he ratifies, as he said, the new testament with his blood. Did our Lord mean what he said? We believe it. What makes our faith unique is this that we do not pick and choose among the words of our blessed Lord. We do not fool around with them. When he said, who sinned you shall forgive, they are forgiven, we believe it. That is why there is the sacrament of penance. When he called Peter the rock, we believe it. And now when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, we believe it. And so the law of communion continues through the universe. If the plants could speak, they would say to the animals, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. If the animals could speak, they would say to man, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. And Christ speaks to us and says, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. The law of transformation holds sway. Chemicals are transformed into plants, plants into animals, animals into man, and man into Christ. Christ, the divine pelican. According to the legend, the pelican wounds itself in order that it might nourish its young. So he gave his life to sustain our life. And the greatest joy in the world is communion with the very life of God. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today for a little bit of encouragement from the good Archbishop, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And we are happy to, uh, of course, share with you some of our resources that we have, uh, websites that were created that can help you uh, find a few more uh, nuggets of Sheen's wisdom. Uh, there is the ever-popular website called bishopsheentoday.com, and uh, it's got quite an uh, international following. Uh, over a million people visit this website each year. And on bishopsheentoday.com, there are hundreds of videos for you to enjoy. Uh, of course, hundreds of downloads for audio recordings and a number of his books. So uh, everything Sheen is there. And, of course, everybody wants to uh, share Sheen with their friends. And so uh, may I encourage you to pick up a few of his books um, he wrote 66 of them, and so uh, lots are available. Uh, one of my favorite is the Holy Hour Prayer Book, 
and it's available through Amazon. Uh, again, it's a bestseller in Australia, the United States of America, in the United Kingdom. Again, just search Fulton Sheen's Holy Hour Prayer Book, and it'll come up on the feed. So uh, a nice little meditation book that Fulton Sheen put together in the 40s, but we've republished it through Bishop Sheen Today Publishing. So again, the Holy Hour Prayer Book, available on Amazon. And again, it is one of those um, things that we can't do enough of, it seems, is, is prayer. And to carve out that one hour every day of prayer is so important. And uh, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen spent uh, 62 years um, never missing his holy hour. So God love him. All right. Please share uh, the good news. <laughs> Please share, of course, uh, this uh, Bishop Sheen Today podcast with your friends and family. And uh, my dear friends, until the next time that we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. <laughs>